Hey. We're going to um, continue back into the relationship stuff uh, that we've been working into here for the last few weeks. I was uh, going through my notes today and um, reflecting on the interjection of leadership practices last week. I was really glad we did that because um, it'll... It'll set a context for some of the stuff we're going to look at this week um, as we get further into the topic of marriage. I'm not sure if we'll get through all of this tonight. We may spend another week here because um, I want to take a little bit different approach uh, than typical. And rather than just talk about being married, though I'm sure some of that will come up, I want to talk about the importance and the value of marriage, some of a uh, little bit get into the destruction, the destructiveness of divorce as well. So I'm going to pray and then we'll commence. Father, we just thank you. Uh, we thank you for relationships. We thank you for friendships, for family, for marriage. We thank you for loving us like a husband loves his wife, intimately, with vulnerability, sacrificially. And uh, so, Father, as we get into um, examination of marriage, as you created it and defined it, I, I just ask that you would bring light to our minds and cause us to understand your ways and uh, to, to see, know, and walk in your paths. We love you. Amen. All right, so marriage. Last couple of weeks, we've gone from uh, developing relationships to um, some foundational relational principles that are effective and valuable in any relationship. Then, then we stepped into um, the biblical definition uh, that marriage is ultimately the most intimate relationship that two people can share. Uh, and the biblical backing for that. Last week we took a small detour and looked at some leadership practices. It may have felt like a bore, um, but if we cannot learn to be more effective leaders and to raise up more effective leaders behind us, you see a movement cease in one generation. So leadership development is extremely important, and also it reflects... Um, significantly upon the relationship of marriage as well. So marriage was created and defined by God to be the foundation of family, which is the building block of all society. Marriage was created and defined by God to be the foundation of family, which is the building block of all society. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created mankind in his own image in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was in the garden before the fall that God designed, cre created designed and defined marriage. And he created uh, 
male and female to enjoy the first marriage and to be the building block for all of society and for humanity's dominion over the earth. That's all right there in that first uh, description of marriage. So this is pre-fall. This is before any corruption had entered the world that God created and defined marriage as the foundational relationship and that cornerstone from which society would be constructed. When God envisioned a society full of people that were walking in his ways, the sole relationship that he put on the earth was a male and a female and told them to get going and be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. He didn't populate nations. He didn't put millions of people on the earth. He put two people on the earth and knew that it would culminate in humanity's dominion over all the globe. It's kind of an incredible thought. The garden was the setting for God's initial and foremost plan for man to rule and have dominion over the earth. I just want to mention for um, anyone who is wondering that Jesus affirmed this same Genesis 1 passage in Mark 10. And he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the initial design in the garden by God when he created and defined marriage is the same as what Jesus re-emphasized in the new covenant, in the kingdom of God, for marriage to reflect going forward. So marriage is the foundation of family. Be fruitful and multiply. Outside of marriage, there is no family. You can't have a brother and sister if you don't share a mommy and daddy. Um, So marriage is the foundation of family. Marriage is also a reflection of God's love for his people. Intimacy, vulnerability, and enjoyment of one another are fruits of marriage and are also a reflection of the relationship that we share with Jesus. So I'm just going to click off some things. In Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 3, there are a couple of texts that I'm not going to get to until later. I hope I get there today. I may not get there, so... You can reference them because the things that I'm going to share with you come out of that context, but it doesn't bear reading it until I'm going to make some specific points about those two passages later. Marriage is the best environment for children to be raised. This is uh, both biblical and um, proven by scientific data collection um, that marriage uh, is the best environment for children to be raised. Children are also created from the union of marriage. Now, one thing I want to put a precursor in on this week. I'm not going to get into messy, disastrous, destructive marriages and try to defend those. What I want to talk about this week is God's design for marriage and how it was meant to work and how it was meant to flourish and what that flourishing relationship was supposed to produce and affect Probably next week, we will look at some of the messier, more disastrous, harmful marriages 
and how we can avoid those, but also have a good impact and influence and give good counsel to people who may be in one of those. Hopefully, none of us are. Um, as I thought about that, I'm pretty sure that we're safe here in this room. Okay. So children are created from the union of marriage. And one of the common uh, arguments against be fruitful and multiply that I hear, and we'll touch on this a little bit later uh, when we get into the parental-child relationship, is that population control is an issue today, and it wasn't an issue when God gave this command. And if you really research this, population control is now considered as a joke by both secular and Christian scientists on both sides of the argument. So the, the scientific uh, population control argument is now viewed as a, kind of a mockery by any true scientist, secular or Christian. Um, and I can give you references if you're interested in those. So fill the earth and subdue it was the command uh, of, of God to the original couple and for marriage. And uh, I just want to make a quick comment that there is more to subduing the earth than eating organic and having a pet dog. Um, I think, Pastor Tuttle mentioned this once, but I believe that Noah was demonstrating his authority in subduing the earth when the animals were called to fill the ark. Um, if you look at Genesis 6, the command from God to Noah was, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures. Two of every kind of bird, kind of animal, kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah had to bring into the ark two of all creatures. Can you imagine getting that command? It's a big garden, guys. It's not, this isn't like Emily's garden out back. This is a major garden, and there's multitudes of different kinds of animals. And God says, you're going to put these on a boat, Noah. I'll see you when the boat's full. So how does he go about doing this? How does this come to pass? And I would just suggest that there is the possibility that Noah was asserting his dominion over the wildlife in, in bringing the creatures onto the boat. And my point in saying that is, when we look at God's original command to be fruitful and multiply, um, to to fill the earth and subdue it. I think we have so minimized that as far as the scope and the grandeur of his vision for what he may have had in store in regard to what we can produce when it comes to uh, vegetation and crops, our role in regard to his creation and the animal life and what is available. I don't even think we have begun to scratch the surface of what God meant when he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We're just figuring out the child-raising side of it. We're just scratching the surface with that. So there's far more to God's initial command than what we've ever considered. I'm convinced of it. So marriage. Marriage is a covenant. You guys know what a covenantal relationship is? 
Um, essentially, this means that you just can't walk out on it when it doesn't feel nice. A covenant is an agreement you make before God to commit to another person. That's what a covenant is. And two weeks ago, <clears throat> I, I explained a covenantal relationship and the difference between covenants made between individuals and covenants made before God. A covenant, the covenant of marriage is a commitment to God to commit to a person until death do you part. A covenantal relationship is a relationship that you don't get to just walk away from when it becomes uncomfortable, hard, or unpleasant. Marriage is a commitment before God to work together with your spouse toward a mutually fulfilling relationship through growth in holiness. I'm using very specific words. I'll make a side note that marriage is a really great way to develop maturity. Um, and, and that's a good thing. God uses it as a part of our maturation process. Um, but, you know, something that is hard to explain um, to someone who's not in a marriage yet is how much it will do for you in regard to producing holiness and maturing you as you walk with God. It's, it's just, it's true. Because you're forced to figure out how to truly love, forgive, and be kind to someone that's sharing a bed with you when you've just had a three-day-long disagreement. That raises the stakes, particularly if you walk in the light of my first priority in marriage is to be holy to be godly in the way that I treat my spouse. So we've been disagreeing for four hours about something that we both feel very strongly about, and now we have to trudge up the stairs in silence and climb into bed and pretend that we love each other or act upon it. That does enormous amounts for your personal growth and development in pursuits of holiness. When you're not married and you have a disagreement with someone, you just peace out and head home. You sleep in your own bed and you think all these nasty things about them and how wrong they were and you work on your arguments for the next time you see them and by the time you see them four or five days later, you're ready to go and you're in holy mode but you know what you're going to say and you say it and you lay it out flat and you walk away again. In a marriage, you don't have that luxury. You have to be kind, you have to be loving, you have to be gentle, you have to be respectful. And you have to snuggle. And sometimes, all of those are difficult to do at the same time. <laughs> it's true. But if you will force yourself to act in godliness, in holiness, in marriage, in disagreement, it will produce a fruit of both beautiful relationship and maturity in your own life as you treat your spouse appropriately. So I, I do say this jokingly, but um, uh, when, you're, when you're forced to develop the attributes of love, that's what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the First Corinthians attributes of love, not the affections, the actions of love. When you're forced to develop the actions of love described in First Corinthians 13, 
because you must be holy, it causes personal growth. I keep referring to this must be holy, and it's a little bit later in my notes, but it bears repeating, so I'll I'll say it now. Primarily in marriage, your responsibility is to become holy before love your spouse and be a great spouse. And your spouse's primary role is to assist in making you holy as a priority to trying to be a good lover. A holy... I'm going to get there in a minute, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there now, um, and then if it comes back up later. A spouse's chief responsibility is to help make you holy. In Ephesians 5, Paul, the apostle of grace, is referencing the leadership, submission, uh, relationship between husband and wife, and he tells the husband that his job is to, like Christ, help present holy, spotless, blameless bride. And he refers to how Jesus does this to us through the washing of water and the word. And what I realized as looking at this text is he's telling us as husbands and wives that our primary calling to our spouse is to assist in their becoming holy. Holy being defined as nearness to Christ and likeness of Christ. That's the easiest way you can describe holiness. It's wholeness, it's set-apartness, but holiness is nearness to God that produces a likeness of God. And a spouse's chief responsibility is to help make you holy. Your spouse should be more concerned with helping you grow nearer and more like Jesus than with trying to make you happy. This does not negate the responsibility to love and treat our spouse well, but it is aware of the reality that true happiness is found in holiness. Happiness does not come from finding the perfectly performing spouse. It comes from nearness to Christ, and happy holiness produces happy marriages. So what this is saying, and and what I'm saying is, your chief responsibility as a spouse is to assist in the development of holiness in your, in your marriage, in your spouse. It prioritizes your spouse's holiness and your own holiness over your labor to make them happy because it realizes that if I'm holy, I will be happy. It is a byproduct of nearness to God and likeness to Christ. Holiness produces happiness in us, and when I'm holy, and I have the fruit of happiness that goes along with it, I am going to be a better spouse, bar none, over and over and over. And I'll give you an example out of my personal life. When I got married, I was um, intense. Um, That's an understatement. And and it was intense to, we're going to get it right. We're going to have the perfect marriage. So we got introduced to Jimmy Evans' Marriage on the Rock material, which is some pretty good material. Um, I don't remember if the material, uh, I'm not going to blame the material, I'll just blame me, it's easier, um, 
Through this material, I began to attempt to produce with my future wife at the time the perfect relationship. And so Jimmy had a lot of recommendations, and he'd been doing this for 30 years. So we started walking through the things that we needed to walk through. We got books from friends, 101 questions to ask before you get engaged. We got Jimmy Evans' Marriage on the Rock. We got Freedom from Your Past. And we started going through this stuff as though if we went through all the right material and asked all the right questions and healed all the right wounds that within the first year of our marriage, we would have the perfect relationship and we would be able to fully satisfy one another, make one another happy, and have an example for all people to look at and see the love of Christ represented. So the the desire was genuine. It was just wrong. And so we set out to be the perfect spouse and help our spouse become the perfect spouse by telling them, hey, you know, the five love languages and you know, love and respect, and there's all these different methods to this. And over the years, I've come to realize these are good things to discuss with your spouse, to get to know one another and to understand how we can relate to one another better and to treat one another. But not every woman is, uh, needs just love and no respect, and not every man needs respect and just love. So you can't create formulas with people. And so I realized we're doing all this work to create the perfect spouse, to be the perfect spouse, to create the perfect spouse and manifest the perfect relationship, and we worked hard. I mean, we, we exhausted each other and ourselves. And what we came to discover was that it wasn't in the pursuit of a perfect marriage that a perfect marriage and happiness would be found. It was in pursuit of a perfect God which is holiness, and in the development of a likeness of Christ that produces happiness that makes me a better spouse, which makes me have a better marriage. And it took a long time to figure that out, but it's a major difference that needs to be identified and separated, that rather than attempt to formulate through 12-step programs, the perfect marriage, seek God, be near to God, become like Him, and you will become a better spouse. It's so simple and obvious, and yet it's so easily missed in our pursuit of the perfect marriage. So marriage is a commitment to work together through mutually fulfilling relationship through growth and holiness. That's why I worded it this way, is it's our growth in holiness, our nearness to Christ and becoming more like him that will make us a better spouse. It takes far less labor to be a good spouse when you're holy than it does when you're trying to make it work by formulating a perfect marriage. Also should be noted uh, in regard to marriage that you're marrying someone whose daddy is the almighty God. And that's really important um, 
because in a marriage, because we are, we're intimate, we're the only two around often, um, it gets easy to start to treat someone uh, in a way that it, it isn't appropriate. And the conscious awareness that the person that I'm marrying and married to is, we talk about it regularly, is the child of God is essential to have in the forefront of our mind. Not figuratively, literally. Literally. And we, we will be uh, judged according to how we treat our spouse. This is good news for us that treat our spouses well and are honoring and respectful and loving toward our spouses. It's, this is really good news. You will be judged according to this, and you'll be rewarded for it. So that was a little bit of context, and um, I want to get into divorce for a few minutes. Um, Jesus gave one reason for divorce, <coughs> marital unfaithfulness. Paul gave another, if an unbelieving spouse chooses to leave, let them go. So why were they so restrictive in giving permission for divorce? Um, The harmfulness of divorce is so great. It's so enormous. And it's so brushed over now in our society because it's been so normal and normalized. But if Jesus gave one reason and Paul added another for those who had married into uh, or, or were born again into an unbelieving situation, there were two reasons they gave that permitted divorce, which means they felt very strongly that there was no good reason for this ever. And at this point, societally, it is so normative that we don't even really get upset when it happens anymore. We hear about Christian friends that are getting divorced, and it's just like, well, another one bites the dust. Uh, And we've lost the weightiness and the damage and the destruction that's caused by divorce. And we have to look at it honestly. And in part, we need to ask God for his heart in the matter so that we can understand why Divorce is so destructive, but more so why marriage is so precious and so valuable. So why is it so harmful? When Jesus quoted Genesis 1, he made the statement, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The first reason that divorce is so destructive is we're violating a covenant with God. And we are breaking his design and his will for a relationship. Because God has joined two individuals into one flesh the only way to separate them is by breaking. This picture of cleaving, two people cleaving one to another and becoming one flesh, 
is a literal changing of the makeup. In Ephesians 5, Paul uses this same imagery right here when referring to how we have become one with Christ. We're inseparable with Christ. We have taken on his name. We have taken on his his nature. The Spirit of God is inseparable from us. And Paul's using the imagery from Mark 10 of the two becoming one to represent what's happened with us, with us and Christ. And so the imagery here is cleaving, that's becoming one unbreakable piece, one flesh. And the only way for that one piece to be separated in divorce is by breaking both pieces and leaving destruction in two lives. Divorce results in two broken people who had been intended to live as one. Divorce breaks the individuals in the marriage and destroys the family. That family will never again be the same. This is, um, it's obvious, right? Because you're, you're no longer the same family unit. Um, I can tell you from, from experience that my parents went through a divorce when I was in my early 20s, and I, I got to see through the divorce the restoration of all the individuals in my family. Um, I got to see my, my siblings come together and unite and develop relationships that they'd never had before. I got to see my mom uh, healed, restored, and created into a new and incredible person that she had not been before uh, this divorce took place. I watched my dad be restored and tenderized and turned into uh, something incredible that he never was before. And yet, in spite of the beauty that God has done with this destruction, it's still destruction. My family is not the same. It's not the same. So in spite of seeing an entire family restored, there was a better alternative. That family will never again be the same. There are also some just sociological and data, I guess. Uh, Women are... Women coming out of a divorce are more likely to live in an impoverished state. These are just facts. Um, divorced people are three, more, three times more likely to commit suicide. Uh, divorced people have more health problems, all physical, emotional, and psychological. Grief. The grief borne by the individual coming out of, coming, going through a divorce and coming out of a divorce is immense. Um, the blame, first blaming of one another, then the blaming of oneself. Uh, an inability to ever feel trust in the same way that was once felt. And of course, it's a, it's a termination of God's will and covenant. And that's, that's devastating. That's destructive. 
That's the equivalent of a spirit-born Christian turning and walking away from God. And, and Scripture just says that's the most atrocious thing that can happen. It's a termination of God's will and covenant. It also has a fruit of grief and rejection for the children. Imagine talking to a three- or four-year-old and expressing to them that mommy and daddy don't love each other anymore. The effect that would have on the child, not to mention the parents. The family would never be the same. The instability and deterioration of trust is difficult for adults to overcome, let alone children that experience a divorce. Data shows that children of divorced parents function more poorly emotionally, socially, financially, and academically, all of them. We're just scratching the surface on the destructiveness of divorce. Um, and I think some of us may have experiences that you know, we, can, we can describe. And yet, having gone through one um, in my own household, I can attest to the restorative work of, of God in an awful situation and the beauty he can bring about out of it. I do say, however, that I'd much prefer the alternative and not first seeing the marriage separate before the restoration came. So, why is marriage so valuable and precious? When you look at one of the sole divisive issues in our society today, it is marriage. And typically, when an issue becomes so prominent as the issue of marriage, biblical marriage, and there is such an assault on it, we should respond with the question, why is this so valuable? Why is this so important that armies are waging war over this thing in the heavenly realms? People groups are freaking out over this thing. What is it about this thing that is so precious, whatever it may be, whatever that issue may be. There, right now there are a number uh, in our society that are so important. So what is it about marriage that is so valuable and precious? Firstly, and often overlooked, though it never should be, is that it honors and pleases God, and it honors His covenant and thus receives His blessing. We go through this one and we just blow right through it. And as though having the blessing of God and the approval of God on our relationship, it's just as though it means almost nothing. This is the priority in marriage. And that's why holiness should be our chief pursuit is when I have the approval, the delight in the blessing of God in a matter, that matter is bound for success. It is bound to success. When God is looking at my activity and, I, and I'm walking in obedience to him, whatever that activity is, when it has his blessing, his favor, and his pleasure in it, it is going to prosper. That is the priority that we must be aware of in marriage. When marriage loses the blessing of God, 
it loses most of the battle immediately. When we step into disobedience in marriage, the first thing that we must do is repent and get the blessing and the favor of God back on our relationship, lest we lose it entirely. Marriage allows two individuals to become greater as one than they could have been separately. Two individuals are becoming one flesh. That united flesh is more capable, more potent than what those two individuals could have done separately. Logically, it's really hard to have a child by yourself. Just, that's, that's science. Um, I don't know who's teaching science, but I think Shar knows a lot about science. You can ask her about that one. <laughs> it takes two people. You cannot be fruitful and multiply on your own. I hope. Somebody shoot the rabbit. Marriage provides a secure and stable environment in which each individual can grow and be nurtured into health, wholeness, and maturity. We talk about that in our churches and in our small groups, but maybe what hasn't been communicated as frequently is that our churches and our small groups are actually designed after our families. So the family unit is the foundational unit upon which church and community forms. So marriage is there to provide a secure and stable environment in which each individual can grow and be nurtured into health, wholeness, and maturity. It's like a greenhouse. It's a protective environment for someone to grow in safety. It allows a person to grow without threat of abandonment. There is no other option. In other words, when you enter into marriage, you enter into a covenant, and you have no alternative other than the, time, the day we will separate is the day one of us or both of us meet the Lord. There is no alternative when you enter the covenant of marriage. And that's how it should be viewed and understood. As I enter marriage, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person. And knowing that provides tremendous security. It provides tremendous safety because I don't have to be afraid of being abandoned or left for someone else. I don't have to be afraid of being on my own anymore. Marriage provides confidence. Someone finally finds me attractive, enjoyable, and valuable. Amen. I waited 26 years for that. Mary's 90% blind. Works for me. You can also have friends like Ryan that he builds confidence to. Someone finds you attractive, enjoyable, and valuable. Marriage affects us so positively that when I know I'm coming home to an environment where I'm excited to be seen and welcomed, I want to get home. 
But when I have to leave, I leave with confidence, with surety that I matter, that I have value. Marriage is safe. It's an environment where you're not in danger of being mocked, ridiculed, or harassed. Like I said, if there's messy issues, we'll talk about those another week. This is the way it should be. Marriage is in a safe environment in which you are not in danger of being mocked, ridiculed, or harassed. How great would it be to be able to share your ideas, your desires, your dreams with an individual and have no fear that they're going to be laughed at and ridiculed? That's marriage. That's marriage, where you can share the deepest, inmost things that you fear to share with anyone else and have them received with joy and excitement and pleasure. Marriage is safe. Marriage is joyful and fun. There were two things that I had never heard until I came to this church. Um, One was how much fun and joy came out of marriage, and the other was how much fun and joy came out of being a parent. And I had never been told those things. Probably a lot of it was just due to my own immaturity and and not engaging people who had the uh, knowledge to share. But I came here, and I'd hear stories from the Tuttle kids about their parents giggling. Um, I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) I almost got myself into a corner on that one. Um, No, the the kids were talking about they were trying to go to bed when they were little, and their mom and dad would be having fun and laughing and joking and up late, just enjoying one another's company. And I was like, wow, most of the parents I knew, they didn't even talk to each other. That's unusual. But I have seen and discovered how much fun and joy can be brought by marriage, how much beauty is found there. I love, I love watching my friends um, enjoy their spouses and the fun that uh, the different ones have in, in totally different ways. Marriage provides a sanctuary of security, acceptance, and love. Um, one of the first things we decided uh, when we got um, engaged or married, I don't remember when it was, but um, we decided that we would not ever raise our voices to one another in our, in our relationship. We weren't going to yell at each other. Um, for me, one of the most disrespectful things a person can do is, uh, is yell at you. And um, there are a number of others, but that's one of the worst. And so we decided that we'd have a no, no raising our voice rule. So we're, we're never going to yell at each other. That was the agreement that we made. Um, because primarily our marriage had to be a place of security, acceptance, and love. And if you're, you're continually being pushed away and shouted at and treated like a fool, 
it's very difficult to develop that security, that feeling of acceptance, and then demonstrate that love at another time. For me, one of the most difficult things for uh, looking at marriage is when the hypocrisy enters of, I want to be really loving and romantic one minute, but 15 minutes later when we disagree, I want to be able to freak out at you and then be romantic again 15 minutes later and just have you act like nothing happened. It's hypocrisy. People see hypocrisy. Children see hypocrisy. And so it's essential that we carry ourselves in a continually honoring and respectful manner of one another so that even in disagreement, there's no divisiveness driven in. Marriage is a sanctuary of security, acceptance, and love. Those who are married would probably agree with this, that when marriage is great, the world can be crumbling around you and you're still okay. You still feel good. When marriage is rotten, everything else can be perfect and you're miserable. When you're in a disagreement and you're in turmoil in your relationship, everything can be going beautifully and you can't get peace. That's why marriage is so essential. What it does to impact every other area of our life is is immense. Marriage provides a secure and stable environment in which children can be raised and nurtured. Again, these comments are coming out of Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 3. I'm not sure if we'll get to the text today, but... Provides a secure and stable environment in which children can be raised and nurtured. I had this thought today. I was convicted. If I respect and love my wife too much to raise my voice to her, then why would I raise my voice to my children? It's, it's easy because they're just little and they do stuff that, frankly, it's frustrating. Um, I don't know if you've met any children, um, but they don't tend to listen the first time around. Um, regularly, they'll, they'll just do what they want to do no matter how many times you ask them to do something else. And uh, it can be very difficult to maintain patience and self-control in a, in a gentle tone when, you know, someone is doing backflips off the edge of the crib for the fourth time um, after splitting their head open on the tile floor. So uh, anyway, that, that's a thought for, uh, for another day, but something to think about for those of you who are parents. Marriage fosters trust which is at the foundation, or which is uh, the foundation of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, things that we do not see. And it's very difficult to have much faith if we have no trust. If we can't can't develop trust, um, it's, it's very difficult to have a true life of faith where we trust or have faith in God whom we cannot see. So marriage is a great seedbed for fostering trust in building and developing faith and creating powerful faith couples because it fosters trust. Marriage allows the world to see what love is intended to look like. It allows them a glimpse of Jesus' love for us. This is true. Um, One of the really cool things about being a part of this group is being out in the community and and having people talk about having met another couple 
that's a part of our, our group of, of friends and, and people. And the admiration that people have for the marriages and the families that are being built and developed here. And we're at, I mean, you know, we think we're into it quite a ways because we've got kids that are four years old running around. But we're, we're at the very beginnings of something that as this group of people grows and has more children and, and another generation comes up and begins to be married and have children of their own, for godly families to be represented in a community year after year after year and marriages that are admirable and beautiful to be present in a community year after year after year is a powerful, powerful testimony of the work of God in our midst. Marriage provides a strong foundation upon which strong families can be built. Strong families are what create strong communities and strong communities shape society. This is how it was in the beginning. This is still the way that we shape our culture. Healthy marriages produce healthy families, which produce, when put together, strong communities, and strong communities define and shape our society. That's why I believe this is one of the most pertinent and divisive issues of our day, is that it is so valuable, it is so precious. We talk about being world changers, but marriage is the building block for changing and shaping society. It's not individuals running around doing their thing. It is people that invest in marriage relationships and then in one another for the long haul, over the course of 30, 50, 75 years. Even when revivals have swept through different areas in the past, the ones that have lasted were the ones that took root. They, had, they got married. They had children. They developed a group of people around which they would build and grow for years and years and years. And it's still functioning that way. The Hebrides revival is one of the primary examples. A revival swept through there that lasted between three and five years. And then the, the quote-unquote crazy meetings ended. But 40 and 50 years later, they were still saying, we've had no backsliding since those days when all of the taverns were closed up, since the people that were drunk four and five nights a week became leaders of Bible studies and churches and parishes is what they called it. They've had no one slide back into sin in 40 and 50 years. The only way that happens is through strong marriages generating strong families, tying together in strong communities. I believe that the re-establishment of godly marriages in our churches first, and then in our culture, and out of that, the strengthening of the family unit as God designed it, is what will begin to swing our country back in a direction that it, it desperately needs to go. I'm going to stop there before I get into Ephesians 5 and Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 because I'm not going to have time to get through the stuff that I would need to. So I'm going to stop there. I'm going to pray. I guess I'd say one thing in regard to divorce. Um, if, if you experience a divorce and uh, there's, still tr- there's still grief in your heart over it, um, that's appropriate. And one of the things that I had that divorce causes is grief. And one of the most important things when 
experiencing a divorce is to acknowledge the grief that's appropriate and say, this never was meant to happen. It's right that I grieve this. It's right that I feel sorrow over this. But then not to cling to that grief, but to forgive, to release guilt over the matter, and to be able to move into healing. But it will not come if we don't first acknowledge that this was wrong. This should never have happened, and this caused me great pain. Often, our healing is is simply uh, right around the corner when we are willing to admit to God, this has caused me great pain. I need you to meet me here in this and help me walk out of it. Um, So I just say that if, if you have experienced that, that just... Just grab someone and ask them to pray for you before you take off and, uh, and just see what the Lord would do on your behalf today. Um, for those of you who are not married, um, I tell you this because we're just getting into marriage, but um, it's the most amazing thing that I've ever experienced. It's the most ma- amazing relationship I've ever had um, with a person. And I have had and do have some incredible friendships, um, but it's worth waiting for in regard to not forcing it to happen when, you know, the really good-looking athlete cruises by and waves. Um, but to, to wait until you know that you're ready to commit to someone and that you're going to do this for the long term. It is, it is the most incredible privilege to get to enter. And um, for those of you who are married, um, tell people, you know, that you've got it great. And be willing to share that privilege um, because it's God's story. It's a testimony. And marriage is a testimony of the Lord's work in our lives. And I think a lot of times we don't, really share the beauty of our marriages as often as we should. And, and so I just encourage you guys, one, um, just be thankful that, that you're a person that's been given an incredible marriage. Uh, two, let other people know about, about what, you've, uh, what you've been enjoying. And, um, and three, understand that your marriage is so precious in the sight of the Lord. And it so needs to be protected and guarded and, and worked for to continue to keep it a thing of beauty for years to come. And so I just say that, that you wouldn't take it lightly. I don't think anyone in here would. Um, but this thing is so beautiful in the eyes of the Lord that if we can be a people that can establish godly and beautiful marriages again, that there are going to be a lot of people that we can help and serve in years to come as more and more people are looking and asking, what is this supposed to look like? So, Father, I just thank you for, uh, for your word. Thank you for the, the covenant of marriage, Lord. Thank you for the enjoyment of the relationship of marriage. Lord, thank you for the beautiful marriages that you've put in this place. Lord, the the couples that you've drawn together from opposite ends of uh, the country and the state and put them together. Um, Lord, when I I hear the stories about the knitting of two individuals into one flesh and you realize how um, ridiculous and unlikely it is 
it's undeniable that you are involved and that this is your testimony. And so, Father, we just thank you for your work in our midst uh, on behalf of this, this covenant of marriage. Lord, don't allow us to overlook the miracle of beautiful marriages in pursuit of uh, something that we consider more supernatural or spiritual. Father, help us to value and, uh, and appreciate the beauty of healthy marriages and to, uh, to become a people who are able to enjoy them even more fully. Lead us into the fullness of your plans for marriage, Lord, the things that we've not considered or seen before, or understood or comprehended. Father, open our eyes and, and lead us into uh, the beauty that you have in store for us in marriage. We love you and we thank you. Amen.